is upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. Thank you so much for joining us today. There's been a notable shift in the African art market as more art collectors, investors and galleries have come to understand and place value in the economic and cultural significance of both traditional and contemporary African art. So you want to find like artists who are up and coming, you know, the guys who are just, you know, breaking away, you know, having their first solos, group shows and have an authentic voice, really. That is Julius Agogo, a Ghanaian art collector and investor. He talks to us about the potential in the African art market and gives us advice on how and where to start as a collector of African art. And we continue with the second part in our series. How do you make business more beautiful? We see everything through the lens of emotional intelligence and try to change the language of business, but then also the the practices. So we want to create a business culture where it's not only positive emotions and optimism and productivity that that are honored, but also more complicated emotions. That is Tim Librecht, one of the founders of the House of Beautiful Business. He says that through his platform and community, wants to make business more beautiful. He joins me from Madrid together with social entrepreneur and writer Hannah Bezad. But first, before we get into our conversations, let's hear from you, our listeners. According to the African Development Bank, one third of youth in Africa are unemployed, making youth unemployment a significant challenge that has far-reaching social, economic and political implications. And so we asked you to give us your opinions on how to fix this issue. This is what you said. Um, my name is Immaculate from Kampala, Uganda, of course. Uh, some of the solutions that I would provide to cap down employment would unemployment rather would mainly be empower job creators, more more job creators than the job seekers, because there are so many educated people and yet unemployed. And then you find them going into businesses. However, not majority, not all of them are capable of having the capital to, in, to start businesses or even own them. Okay, my name is Opetum Philbert. I'm a Pan-Africanist. If I was an authority and I'm a leader, some of the things I would introduce, which will, which will reduce unemployment in Africa, I would introduce hands-on skills to my youth and the education system of Africa has to be changed. I would make sure that we must believe in ourselves, utilize our resources. Uh, St. Peter Robert, to create more companies and factories so that we youth as we uh, can get uh, more jobs and so that we can change our life. They could do, they can first fight, fight corruption. After fighting corruption, that's when people can do what? Can get, I think, more jobs and uh, interested things. Hello, I'm Richard Martin Smolke from Nigeria, Kalaba State, Biambu, Federal Local Government. I'm enjoying your program. Thank you very much. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. In recent years, the African art market has experienced a remarkable growth that is being driven by an emerging and vibrant contemporary art scene. Interest in African art has led to a surge in global exhibitions, in art fairs and sales, making it possible for investors to diversify their art portfolios 
as they contribute to the development of the African art ecosystem. For example, in October 2023, Ethiopian-American artist Julie Meretu set a new auction record for an African-born artist by selling her painting for $9.3 million. And according to Art Price, that's a French online Art Price database, last year alone, 2023, $63 million was spent on art from African-born artists. Anli said that this is a sign that the investment landscape in African art is evolving and growing. Julia Sagogo is the co-founder of Move On Group, a Ghanaian finance company that is investing in African artists and art galleries, including the number nine contemporary art gallery in Accra. He tells me that global art collectors are starting to recognize the intrinsic value of African artworks, viewing them not only as an aesthetic treasure, but also as a potential financial asset. He joins me from Accra in Ghana. If I was trying to invest in, in African art, what factors should I consider before I put my money down or I acquire the art? I think, um, you know, art is a special thing for everyone. And um, first, you have to like the art. That's the first in the first instance. Um, there's no direction in regards to which specific art to collect, if that makes any sense. It's what you're driven to. And at the end, of the, and, and, and when you look at it that way, you generally find pieces that attract you and they attract most people. So you get the crowd of them. But it's always good to start from the infancy. So what you find in the market is that a lot of people are copying each other in regards to, and I think it happens everywhere. It's, it's, not, it's not isolated to Africa per se. So, you know, you've got the portraiture, you know, portraiture where everyone is following portraiture, for instance. And a lot of artists are, are, are not... Um, what can I say? I'm not coming up with your own creative aspects of what their art is, but rather following the trend of what's selling at the moment. So, and in finding what you know you like or investing in art, first I would suggest that you, first you like the piece, and you always try and find artists who are up and coming, and you believe in them and their story and what they're trying to portray. And how does one authenticate the value of uh, these type of artworks? I think I think you know that's that's therein lies the the, the the issue that needs to a solution needs to be find found because you know at the moment and I dare say this um, you know there's a scenario where you wonder where how people are getting priced now you know your best your, your best bet is to find a good gallerist or find a good art dealer who knows the market understands the market understands the trends and knows the values. Because the reality is, you know, sometimes, you know, one does find themselves in situations where you kind of wonder where the pricing is coming from. And that's a historical thing, because a lot of the artists, uh, obviously, they go with the trend on the values of what people are proposing they're worth. But then you have issues where they drop in value, you know, over years and they wonder why. Did they grow too quick? Did they, you know, was, was it someone just pushing the prices up because that's what the market determined it? Where's the, where is the actual value? So. Again, you know, the only way you can prevent it if you're not a seasoned art collector is to start collecting the young and up and coming, really, and going with your hunch on what you like about them and their story. So you, you start with somebody that you're interested in, the type of art they're doing, and then you start. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you said something about the trends. What would you say are some of the trends in the in the African art market right now that we should be looking forward to? What I mean. One of the things that came pretty big in the last three, four years was the portraiture. So a lot of artists were doing a lot of portraiture with different materials and so forth. Um, and, you know, some of them, are, they're doing really original stuff. 
and they're amazing and they're already known in the market. But you have a whole wave of people following them because they know that it's successful. But their stories are more or less that, you know, they, they haven't found their feet, as it were, or found their purpose as to what they're trying to portray. So those are those are the kind of things you watch out for, you know. Mm. It's obvious for anyone who's collecting to see. And again, it comes down to the gallerist you're with or the gallery or the, 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 the um, dealer who can help you fish through who tells the right story and put the right artist in front of you, really. Are there any specific regions or, or countries that as an art dealer that, you know, would say are producing more valuable artwork? I think when you look at West Africa, obviously, you've got Ghana, Mali. Nigeria is very big, obviously, we know because we had a Natsui and a lot of the, you know, the Nigerian artists, they have a much bigger catchment. And, uh, you know, so Nigeria is one to watch, Ghana is one to watch, Mali are doing some great stuff, East Africa, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Sudan, um, Zimbabwe, there's some great artists coming out there, Morocco, there's great artists coming out there. I mean, you know, in general, across Africa, there's, you know, Cameroon, Senegal, you know, the list goes on and on, you know, I guess people are now taking it more serious and people are understanding the value of art. So you've got great artists coming from the, the whole continent. There's been an issue of uh, people acquiring art and not paying a fair price for them or not knowing the origin of the artwork. We, you know, been talking about repatriating African artworks that were stolen from the continent hundreds of years ago. So that's part of the, the general debate around African artwork. Um, are there any legal considerations or challenges related to owning or selling African art that we should be aware of? Well, I mean, you know, obviously you have to, um, in regards to selling art, um, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's the norms that apply to it. You know, you, um, there isn't any legal um, loop holes or repatriation issues with art, because as you know, art is a tax-free item. Um, so it's, it's also a good storage of wealth, if you understand it, because obviously you get the increase in that. But in regards to, um, you know, repatriation of funds and so forth, I have to look into it, but I'm not aware there's an issue. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. We are chatting with Julius Agogo, the co-founder of Move On Group, a Ghanaian finance company that is investing in African artists and African art galleries. How liquid is the is the market for these artworks? I mean, therein lies the problem because you have artists that um, you know they sell their pieces, you know they, they receive funds for the first time, and um, that's it. You know, there's no training; they don't understand you know the value of how to you know save and save for the next show. So the question then becomes: is that he's got a next show, he needs to raise funds. How does he do it? Again, the banks don't recognize the art as assets yet. Um, the reality is, if you look at the biggest collectors in the world are banks in the Western world. So you've got Deutsche Bank, you've got, you know, Goldman Sachs and all the big banks who are collecting because they know the value, you know. And I think that that's where we are now growing to. Whereas, in, for instance, my company, Move On, that sponsors number nine, you know, we're giving, we're collectorizing pieces of art and also giving the artists an opportunity to, to get realistic valuation based on market trends, how long they've been in and then giving them loans against it. So therefore, naturally, you create an asset class which allows the artist some liquidity. But we're just one of, you know, one, you know, a needle in the haystack of the problem for the artist, you know. And uh, we're trying to solve it one artist at a time, I guess. And I guess more people will come in the market and provide liquidity as time grows and they can see the value. 
as a, I guess an amateur collector, if I wanted to get into this space, would you advise me to focus on contemporary or on traditional African art? I think, you know, if you're looking at in terms of value, it depends what you like. Contemporary is a great place to start because the entry barriers, you know, you can have a rough idea of what the values are if you have the right people, you know, to advise you. Um, African art is, you know, when you're talking about the Bronx sculptures and so forth, these are things that have come down with us from generation to generation. And perhaps now is the time also to start looking at that and collecting things like that because they will become priceless in the many years to come. You know, the way the generations are moving and, you know, uh, uh, the forgotten stories, as it were, which were passed down through these pieces, as in, you know, from our, our generations before us. So, again, you know, contemporary is worth looking at in terms of a starting point. But also keep your eye on the African, you know, the main African stuff. Are there, are there any organizations or associations that you say would say, uh, you know, can provide one guidance on how to invest in, in African art? At the moment, um, there's a few institutions and again, uh, and galleries. I think if you if you look at the market as a whole, there's a lot of galleries popping up. So which means is that there's a drive for people to accept and understand art more and collect at the same time. So. As a starting point, I would find myself, like I said, a gallerist or a dealer, which you trust, which you may follow on Instagram. A lot of people do that and have them do the work to educate you through the mm. process, you know, as a you know a beginner. And then I think after a year or two or after some time, you've collected a few pieces, you kind of get hang of it, you know, of, of what you like and what you don't like, what kind of, you know, what you want to spend. You know, I always say go in a bit low in the first instance, and just grow with the artist. And you find a lot of collectors like myself, you know, and, you know, Isaac Comey, who we worked with, we started collecting Isaac probably about four years ago when no one really knew him, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. he's just grown to be, you know, as you know, a great artist. He's an amazing character, um, very humble. And, you know, his values have gone up since then. So, again, you know, what, what was the starting point? You know, we engaged Isaac. I engaged Isaac because I like him as a person. I like what he represents and his art. So you need to find that common ground when you're coming into the market or finding an artist. You like his pieces, you like his price point, and you grow with him. Julius Agogo, the co-founder of Move On Group, a Ghanaian finance company that is investing in African artists and African art galleries, including the number nine contemporary art gallery in Accra, Ghana. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. The interconnections between technology and our society continue to impact every aspect of our life, from the way we communicate to how we work. However, this rapid progress has its shortcomings. It has not necessarily led to increased productivity and a happier workforce. The think tank, the House of Beautiful Business, explores the intersection of humanity and technology in the context of business and society. Co-founder Tim Librecht tells me that they are on a mission to create a more positive and meaningful vision for the future of work and business. In the second part of our conversation, Tim joins me from Madrid to talk about their upcoming festival to be held in Tangier in Morocco, the first time in Africa. We are also joined by Moroccan social entrepreneur and writer Hannah Bezad. She is the author of the new book, Being Other. The key thing is to create a counter space to the prevailing paradigm of business, which is, you know, shareholder capitalism and the obsession with the, the bottom line. 
and this idea that only what you can quantify and measure has value, and you know, a, a focus on efficiency and productivity. So we try to create a, a counterpoint to that. We aim to create experiences of emotional intimacy, of ambiguity, of playfulness. We see everything through the lens of emotional intelligence and the arts and try to change the language of business, but then also the, the practices. So we want to create a business culture where the where it's not only positive emotions and optimism and productivity that that are honored, but also more complicated emotions, melancholy, sorrow, uh, sadness, where you can bring your full self to work and really show up with a much bigger uh, piece of your identity than only the you know pr productivity machine is, uh, is which we're treated so often in, in the construct of modern management. So that's what we're trying to do. What do you hope people take away from the events? How many days does it take? So it's going to be from uh, May the 2nd to May 5th. Okay, so um, three days, four days. Yes, okay. yes. The theme is between the two of us. And uh, the reason why we chose this theme and we chose Tangier to, to be the city that will host is because we think we're at a time where we need to invest so much more into creating really qualitative relationship. And, and so... When it comes to addressing the challenges of the, the massive challenges that humanity faces when it comes to climate change or peace or uh, some of the challenges that businesses want to address, uh, we think that ultimately it is about the quality of the relationship and the relationality. So being mm -hmm. able to uh, bring new ideas to how people relate to one another on an intimate basis and how this can be uh, permeating some bigger aspects of collaboration and, and then in, into organizations is something that we're hoping people uh, feel uh, inspired uh, by and, and transformed. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually one of the big, uh, I think, vision for this festival, these ideas. Tim, I wanted you to uh, to share some of uh, success stories or notable impact stories that have resulted in, in past festivals. There's some really interesting stories from people like CEOs or founders who came and they came actually with the expectation to generate many leads for their business development. And then they realized, oh, no, this is actually cutting a little bit deeper. And that there's one CEO, for example, who returned back to his design firm um, and then turned it into a B Corp, uh, so a benefit-oriented organization, completely changed the business model and reoriented the entire company to, to serve the circular economy. We also, I mean, there's lots of collaborations. We also have people join who are at a at a critical juncture in their career or their life. And then they come and they meet other people and they feel encouraged to then take the leap. So they change their role, change their job, change their life even. Yeah. And I think the last thing I would say is, like, for example, over the past year or so, we have launched an initiative called Beautiful AI. So in light of the whole, you know, rise and the, the rapid advances yeah. of generative AI, We've created a working group and we've been, uh, we produced some research and we've had many, many conversations online and in person at our gatherings about what a vision for AI might look like that is not just technocratic and is not just focused on, on efficiency, growth and productivity, but actually has a very different fabric and is, mm -hmm. is, is not only more humane, but is, is life centered truly. What does that mean? So we're trying to develop a vision for that. And that, that's an initiative that, that we, yeah, that, continues to uh, mm. be of great importance to us. And, and how do you measure your impact? We don't. 
so the book that I wrote, The Business Romantic, was called Give Everything, Quantify Nothing, and Create Something Greater Than Yourself. So, of course, I mean, you can come up with uh, metrics for really everything. The question is how valid these are. And it's been almost like a little bit of a badge of honor that we, in a sense, refuse to quantify everything. And we really take the stance that we must be very careful not to confuse uh, uh, numbers with a, with this illusion of them being an objective truth. There's so many other truths. There's so many subjective truths out there that are that are equally important. So yeah, of course we track attendees. We track you know the satisfaction of attendees. We also track the the collaborations and initiatives that have uh, grown out of our gatherings. We work with a lot of clients uh, as consultants and partners. We hear back from them. Uh, whether our initiatives have had an impact, you know, both financially, but also culturally. But to be honest, right, at the end of the day, um, success, the success that we are looking for is not quantifiable. It's more of a of an inner transformation that will remain somewhat fuzzy and elusive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the point. You know, beauty is what does not exist, the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa said. And I think that captures it quite well. You know, try to define it and you fail. Mm. It's just a beautiful playing field that you can project your dreams and desires and hopes onto. Uh, and that makes it so powerful. So Hannah, House of Beautiful Business Festival is coming to the motherland. What are you going to do different? What are you looking forward to? What kind of African touch are you going to put onto it? I am so excited for the house to come to Morocco. As a matter of fact, Tim and I, ever since we met, we kind of... Uh, started thinking about uh, bringing it to 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 Africa and Morocco in particular because there there is a community that has been growing over the years so um in addition to uh topics that are relevant for the African continent we're bringing a lot of artists and and uh creatives from from the continent and thinkers uh one of the good friends of the house who's also the co-chair of the festival is Bayo Akomolafe who's a Nigerian thinker fantastic philosopher who's been such an inspiration for me ever since I came across him through the house um and so yes of course there's an aspect of you know having the the setting uh being i guess in a way different from from previous settings because it's going to happen in a palace in Tangier and then we're also going to go to Cap Spartel uh which is this point of juncture between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic uh uh ocean uh i think there's uh, this, these elements of being in, a, in an environment that's different also bringing art we have a beautiful iranian artist who's going to create an art installation for the festival um and so i think there's a we're we're just using all these opportunities to foster dialogue and really i think people have in mind that tangier is this the city in between um and and the city that where a lot of the challenges and the frictions between the global north and the global south can be discussed in a way that feels really anchored mm-hmm. um so it's it's that uh, added value that we want to bring and once again we're super delighted by the fact that a lot of the response that we're getting locally and from the rest of the continent is that of enthusiasm is that of curiosity yeah. is that people know that they're going to learn a lot from this festival This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. In Cameroon, officials have launched a phase 2 of a project to force several thousand kids and adolescent cattle ranchers and gold miners from troubled neighboring countries including CAR, 
Chad, Niger and Nigeria, they're forcing them back to school from mining sites and ranches where they sacrifice education while working illegally for survival. The majority of the children displaced by armed conflict say that they find it difficult to go to school hungry. Moki Edwin Kinzeka has more on this report from Yawunde in Cameroon. Goats and sheep bar as 14-year-old Jubairo Umar leads the animals out of their barn at a ranch in Garua Bulai, a town on Cameroon's border with the Central African Republic. Cameroon government officials say in 2014, Jubairo fled with his mother from Gwen, a village in the southwestern CAR, after a rebel attack left scores, including Jubairo's father dead. Jubairo says his mother's health deteriorated three years after they arrived in Garwa Bulai, and he began working at a cattle ranch to raise money to feed himself and his aging mother. Jubaru says he gets out of bed at 5 a.m. every day and moves sheep and goats from their barn to the pasture fields alongside a couple of cattle. During the day when it is very hot, I direct the cattle, sheep and goats to streams where there is water for the animals to drink and in the evening, I bring back the animals to the barn and light a fire to keep them warm, Jubairu says. Jubairu said he receives a salary of $50 each month for the services he renders at the ranch. Cameroon's government says the 14-year-old is one of several thousand displaced children who officials chased from gold mines and cattle ranches when Cameroon's 2023-2024 school year began in September. But when schools resumed for the second term Tuesday, a majority of the children had returned to ranches and mining sites. Jubairu said he and many of his peers are aware that education is very important but cannot return to classes because they are very poor and hungry. Cameroon says children on its northern border displaced by Boko Haram terrorism in Nigeria, tend to work on cattle ranches, while children driven from the Central African Republic by violence and insecurity usually work in gold mines. Fru Jonathan is Deputy Director General of Cameroon's national mining company, Sona Mines. He says Sona Mines relaunched an operation this week to remove all children of school age from its work sites. We see children who die in landslides. Children as young as 5 to 10 years are found in mining fields with all the hazards involved. We're talking of health problems. We're talking of social problems like rape and so on and so forth. Sonamin has come up with a project of no child labor in the mines. And we are on the field educating, sensitizing, and making sure that these children move from the minefields to the classroom because that is the only way they can prepare their future. A 2021 International Labour Organization report states that at least 1 million children ages 5 to 17 sacrifice education for survival in gold mines around the world. Cameroonian law says that people or parents who force children below 15 years of age into child labour may be sent to prison for 15 to 20 years and be fined of up to $20,000. 
But civil society and rights groups say the law is difficult to enforce because neither parents of the displaced children nor their communities speak out against child labor, which they say is considered normal because the children are poor and hungry. Moki Edwin Kinzuka, VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. that we come to the end of our show today many thanks to our guests and to you for tuning in remember to connect with us on our social media platforms at VOA Africa we are on Facebook on Instagram and on YouTube where you can watch our videos remember to like to share and to subscribe until next time I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead Africa Hello, I am Chinedrofo in Washington. Starting next week, VOA Africa brings you Africa in Brief. Roundups of the latest news from across the continent. We'll start your day off with the news you need when you need it. Find Africa in Brief at 0400-0500-0600-UTC wherever you listen to your favorite VOA Africa radio programs. Has social media improved your life or is it more of a distraction? We'd love to hear from you. You can call us 24-7 on WhatsApp and leave a message. We may play your message on VOA Africa. Dial the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. The number again, plus one, 202-258-3076. Can't wait to hear from you.